two weeks away from finishing the Old Testament. Now I'm going to take a little quick little poll. Would you be interested if we went to Ecclesiastes next and went through Ecclesiastes? If you're interested, raise your hand. If you're not, don't. I'm kidding. I'm knocking that around. I have never in my life taught the whole book of Ecclesiastes. But I was looking at it today thinking, what a rich book. It's rich. That's kind of cynical, but it's rich. So we may go there. But two more weeks and we're done with uh, Connecting the Dots, a brief overview of the Old Testament. And tonight we're going to look at major truth from the minor prophets. Minor prophets aren't so minor. Amen? So let's pray together and ask God to speak to us. Father, we thank you right now that you are here and that your people are hungry for your word. Feed us, Lord, with the living manna. And we thank you for it tonight. Now, can you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me. And I receive that engrafted word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tell your neighbor, perk up and listen. You're going to get fed tonight. Amen. All righty, the minor prophets. Now, we've kind of had a key verse. We haven't said this every time, but I think if there's a key verse for any series we do, it's this one. And I want us to read it together. Can we? Real good and loud, because here is what the Bible says about the Bible. All right, let's read it. All Scripture. Now, let me try again. I had about two of you with me right there. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that's the Bible's testimony about itself, that all Scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos. Neustos breathed out of God. He breathed it out. It's his word. Holy men of old were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit and gave us this word uh, from heaven. So that's where we are. Now, when we understand, getting into the minor prophets, we, the, we, we went over the major prophets last time, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. There's your majors. The only reason they're major is because the, the books are longer. Uh, the minor prophets are only called minor because the books are shorter. But we could say um, longer prophets, shorter prophets. We could say they're all prophets. In other words, the word of God with the minor prophets is every much the word uh, as a bit. Let me just start over. Every bit as much, every bit as much as the word of God from the majors. So, so Hosea is just as accurate as as Isaiah. It's all the word of God. So that's why they're called minor, shorter books. Now, when we understand the spiritual condition of Israel and Judah, it's not surprising that God would allow them to be punished by their neighbors to the north, Assyria and Babylon. Remember, the ten tribes of Israel were judged by God through Assyria. God used Assyria to judge the ten tribes of Israel, the northern tribes. The southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were judged by Babylon, the Babylonians. But both, the two, the divided kingdom, both of them came under judgment for their sin. One of the messages of the prophets is that you can't sin and get away with it. A nation can't sin and get away with it. 
What you sow, you will reap. And you can't get away from that. It is as inexorable a law as gravity. You jump off a building, you're going to drop. If you sin, you're going to reap it. If a nation sins, it's going to reap the consequences. There's no getting around it. Okay? So when you look at the condition of Israel and Judah, it's not at all surprising that God judged them. As we look at these minor prophets now that God raised up to warn them, uh, we should look to find the sins the prophets were rebuking because the very sins they rebuked uh, are everywhere, alive and well, in the United States of America. Okay? There's nothing special about America, church. Now, do I believe it's exceptional? I do. In that, it was a wonderful and is a wonderful experiment in democracy. But is it immune to judgment? No. If God judges his own people, Israel and Judah, he will certainly judge America, and I believe is judging America right now, and further judgments are coming. There's no question in my mind. There's no way to get around it. But he'll take care of you, his people. Amen? So they were raised up to warn Israel and Judah before they really went off the cliff. So understanding this, we'll find that their times are really not unlike ours at all. So let's look at Hosea first. First minor prophet. Hosea began to prophesy during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he was prophesying primarily to the southern kingdom. And a little bit during the reign of Jeroboam II, which was the northern kingdom. But his, his main ministry was to Judah. Now, his ministry spanned about 40 years. That's a long tenure, telling people they're going off the cliff. It began near the end of Jeroboam's reign, some 30 years before the end of northern Israel. So he started warning Israel 30 years before their demise. Think about that. Because God says, I will never do a thing, good or bad, that I don't first announce it through my prophets. All right? And do we have prophets warning America now? I believe we do. I believe we do. And they have been heard and are going to continue to be heard. So about 30 years before Israel was carried off and, listen, folks, never returned. Never returned like Judah did. Here's, here's Hosea warning them. And he kept on preaching a little bit after Israel's demise. Now, Jeroboam II's reign had seen relative peace and prosperity in the life of Israel. They were, they were doing well. Because of this, look what set in. Complacency and a false sense of security. And the people developed a sense of self-reliance. We don't need God. We don't need the Lord. We're, we're making it. We're successful. At the same time, the country began to deteriorate spiritually. It is to this spiritual erosion Hosea addresses his message. The book of Hosea provides us with an interesting object lesson. Now, the calling that God gave Hosea, there's not a man in here who could handle it. I couldn't. And let me show you what it was. Hosea was commanded by God to marry Gomer. That'd be the first hard thing. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Boy, there better not be a gomer in here. If there is, please forgive me. Now, what, who was gomer? An adulteress and really a harlot. 
And he was commanded to marry her and love the children that came from her unfaithfulness. In other words, children that weren't his. He was commanded to love her and love them when she was serially unfaithful and the children weren't his. God said, love them. Wow. God said, quote, Hosea 1, verse 2, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Here's why, Hosea, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Now, there's no doubt about it. Many of the Israelites turned their heads to see what this strange prophet named Hosea was up to. It was God's teaching method, but it came at a huge cost to Hosea. The message God was trying to communicate through Hosea's life was this. As he continued to be faithful to Gomer, even though she was not faithful to him, so God was continuing to love unfaithful Israel, even though Israel was adulterating herself spiritually by following other gods. See, when you and I accept anything in the place of God, that's an idol. It can be a person, a place, or a thing. It doesn't matter. If you replace God with anything in your life, it can be anything, you've gone into idolatry, and so have I. Israel was worshiping idols, and yet God loved them anyway. He said, Hosea, I want you to illustrate what I'm doing with my own people. Love them even though they're unfaithful. <clears throat> the compassion of God is easily understood as one hears it from a prophet who demonstrated that same compassion to his unfaithful wife. So he goes out there preaching to Israel and Judah. They all know he's married a harlot, and they all know that the children aren't his. And so it strikes them as they watch him love them anyway. This is an object lesson. This is a living object lesson. Wow, look at him. He's loving that woman. He's loving those children She's not faithful, and they're not his, but he loves them anyway. And then he would say to them, as I'm doing with them, your God is doing with you, but your time is limited. Oh, the compassion, faithfulness, and mercy of God. I believe this kind of long-suffering has been shown towards our country for decades. Because of the circumstances in his own life, Hosea was able to feel the compassion and the love that God felt for his people. I mean, he felt it. Now, here's the application we get from this book. Let's make it real. Let's bring it down to New Covenant. The Bible teaches that God used the pain that you and I experience, that we would have empathy and compassion toward others. Where are you hurting tonight? Wherever you're hurting, God wants to take that hurt and use it to give you a special empathy and sympathy and compassion for people in the same predicament. See, I came out of the drug culture as a 16-year-old. Now, I was never addicted. I, I never did anything where, I, thank God, I never got to it. I just didn't have the money, or I would have. I'm just being honest with you. But I never did. I never got addicted. But I was very involved in drugs. And ever since then, I have a compassion for people who are in the drug culture, trapped in something they can't get out of in the natural. My heart goes out to them. It, it breaks for them. 
And I have that kind of compassion towards that scenario, more compassion there than I do in, in other areas, because God took my pain and turned it into gain. Now, where are you hurting tonight? Have you been betrayed? Have you been lied to? Has your heart been broken? Where are you hurting tonight? Listen, here's the message from Hosea. God never wastes a pain. He will take your pain. He, he will take your broken heart, your broken life, and he will turn it towards others. Well, let's just read what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. Verse 4. He comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort others. He doesn't just comfort us for our comfort. He, <clears throat> he always comforts us with someone else in mind. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? So God never wastes a pain. So whatever he's comforting you with, uh, healing you of, ministering to you about, he sees down the road people that you're going to encounter and they're going to need a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy. And it's going to flow out of you naturally because of what you're going through right now. And that was Hosea's story. Now we come to Joel. The prophet Joel speaks of a coming locust plague <clears throat> that represents God's punishment on Judah. Now the book of Joel can be divided into two parts. The first part, and I gave you the verses there, chapter 1 through 2, verse 17. The first part contains the words of Joel, warning of the locust plague and of the day of the Lord. Now, the locust plague was real. It really did come. They did experience a locust plague. Chapter 1 clearly warns of literal locusts coming to destroy the crops, one of the greatest fears of farmers in those days. <clears throat> they would see this huge sun-obscuring, black cloud coming towards them. And the closer it got, the more it sounded like a buzzsaw. And it was those locusts. And they would descend by the millions upon their crops. They would descend and cover the crops where the crops, you couldn't see the greenery because the locusts had covered them. And when they lifted off and left, there was nothing remaining. Their whole harvest was destroyed. And Joel said, this locust plague is coming your way, Judah, because of your sin. That's, that's heavy stuff. But folks, like I said, the Bible is so clear that sin is a serious issue. And that you can't sin as a nation and get away with it. You just can't. It's stupid to think you can. And America tonight is stuck on stupid. Write it right here. Stupid. No, really, blind is a better word. Truly blind. Okay. It's not clear whether the message in chapter 2 is one of impending destruction for Judah or a continuation of the locust plague of chapter 1. Whatever the case, it's clear that Joel's warnings refer to an imminent punishment 
They will come on Judah for the sins they have committed. <clears throat> Judah did in fact see what Joel called the day of the Lord, fulfilled when the nation was taken into captivity by Babylon in 586 B.C. So not only was, were prophets like Jeremiah, a major prophet, uh, warning Judah, but minor prophets, or with the shorter books, they were warning Judah of the impending catastrophe. And so the day of the Lord happened in 586 B.C., and they were all taken away, and that's what the book of Lamentations is all about. It's very difficult to read. Now, while the message has already been fulfilled as it relates to Judah, it's relevant today as a warning of judgment for rebellion against God. Okay? The transition from warning to promised deliverance comes in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, which is the pivotal point of the book. <clears throat> Although God is warned of coming punishment, referred to repeatedly as the day of the Lord, he calls on Judah to, quote, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Right down to the end, the prophets that God sent were pleading with the people, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Don't go off the cliff. And you know, God will call on an individual or a, or a nation right to the very end. He'll call to the very end. Say, if you'll just turn, I will heal you. If you'll turn, I'll restore you. If you'll turn, I'll relent. If you'll turn, I won't judge you. But isn't it amazing that God's people, this divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, neither one listened. Not to Jeremiah, not to Isaiah, not to Ezekiel, not to Hosea, not to Joel. They didn't listen. And they did. They went off the cliff. <clears throat> He's confident, Joel is, that God is not one who wishes to punish. The Bible says in James, mercy rejoices over judgment. But his first desire is always to show compassion on you, on me, and on the nation. That's God's heart. It says he doesn't willingly afflict the children of men. He doesn't do that. God wants to show mercy right down to the very end. Aren't you glad that we serve a compassionate, merciful God? Amen. Now, in the second part of the book, the Lord responds to the repentance of the people, bringing deliverance. Most of the minor prophets' messages, although filled with warnings of impending judgment for sin, include a message of hope once the punishment has been completed. Even once you've gone into punishment, as we shared last week, as Judah was being carried off to Babylon, Jeremiah penned the promise, Jeremiah 29, 11, saying, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not, and not of evil to give you a future and to give you a hope. You are thinking, Judah, that I'm against you, but I'm not. I've got a future for you. So after 70 years, what did he do? He had compassion and brought them back to their land. We serve a mighty and a merciful God. <clears throat> Joel writes that because of the greatness of the Lord, joy will return. Well, where did joy go? Well, joy is always robbed away by sin. 
Sin is the great joy stealer. If you want to lose your joy, go and live in sin. You'll lose your joy. The way of the sinner is hard. The way of the righteous person is blessed. Amen? Chapter 3 reminds us that although God uses the nations to punish Judah, their day of accountability is coming as well. The Babylonians didn't get away with uh, being God's instrument against Judah, bringing chastening on them. Babylon was later judged by God. This serves as a good reminder for us today that while it may appear that the sinful world around us has it better than we do, can I tell you definitively, they do not. Let not your heart envy sinners, the Proverbs say, but live in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Because it may look like the world's got it good, but they're going to come under judgment, and Babylon came under judgment, even so. Now, ultimately, all peoples of the earth are judged. The whole earth is going to be judged. However, the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold of the sons of Israel. Joel 3.16. Isn't that so easy to remember? John 3.16. Joel 3.16. Now, what's to be learned when we see God's judgment meted out on those who deserve it? Here's the application for you and me today. You will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Joel's message to Judah and to us is that the coming day of the Lord should result in a transformed life while there's still time to repent. We have time tonight. America has time tonight. But I'm going to tell you, not a lot. Now we come to Amos. Amos, I love the story of Amos. Because you talk about Mr. Unlikely to ever be called as a prophet, Amos was it. Amos spoke during the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the second king of Israel. During Uzziah and Jeroboam's reign, the Jews were once again enjoying a period of peace and prosperity. And Israel and Judah were able to expand their boundaries almost to that of David and Solomon. So this was huge. They were prospering greatly. And their successes gave Israel a sense of national pride. And the people were convinced that Yahweh was favoring them. Now I want you to see something here. They were convinced that because they were the people of God, that no matter what they did, God was favoring them. Okay? They had a, we're we're the select of the elect. We're the special. We're the special ones. Because we're God's chosen, other nations may get in trouble with him, but we won't. They had a false sense of entitlement and security. Yahweh is favoring us. So because their energy was not being spent on defending their borders, you know, God's got it, we're not worried about it, they shifted their focus to international trade and they became very rich in the days of Amos. Now, along with their wealth came injustice and greed. The poor were neglected. Complacency set in. And religion became merely a necessary formality devoid of meaning. They went to church going through the motions. There was nothing real. Nothing was in their heart. They didn't love God. They had no relationship with God. They were just going through the ritualistic church stuff. All right, just the rituals. The rich dominated society, extending their influence on prophets, priests, and judges. That means that everybody was up for a bribe. Reminds you of any group of people we know now? 
Senate, Congress, White House. You can have whatever you want for the right sum. You can buy me, purchase me, I'm for sale. With the corruption of the judicial uh, system, the poor were oppressed because the judges were just doing what the rich people told them to do, judging according to the bribes. While the poor got poorer, the rich got richer. And while these conditions were unfolding in northern Israel, Amos was busy. Amos was just off somewhere a few miles away, tending sheep as a shepherd in the hills of Tekoa, six miles south of Bethlehem. He was just a shepherd from Judah, eking out a meager existence in the countryside when God called him to prophesy. He's just taking care of his sheep, and all of a sudden God taps him on the shoulder. Hey, you, I want you to go to Israel and Judah and tell them they're going off a cliff. I want you to be my prophet. He had no formal training. We don't know how he came to know God the way he did, but God laid his hand on him and brought him out of obscurity into the major limelight. Do it. And Amos said, you got it. Yes, sir. God commanded him to travel north to Israel to deliver the following message. Quote, look at this message he told them. <clears throat> hey, your king is going to die by the sword. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. And he goes into Israel, they don't know who he is, and he says, your king is going to die, and you're going into captivity. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Small wonder this southern neighbor with a doomsday message didn't receive a warm reception in Israel. Listen, truth is not real popular. Have you noticed that? Truth is not a popular commodity. If you want to get people angry at you, be a truthful person. Talk about God. Talk about the Lord. Talk about judgment. Talk about the need to get saved. Tell people Jesus is the only way. And just see what their reaction is. They will not say, what a wonderful thought. I've never thought of that. <laughs> you will immediately be ostracized. Truth is not popular today. It wasn't popular back then. The central thrust of Amos' message can be found in five, chapter 5, verses 4 through 15. And you can read them. In this section, Amos repeats the call for the house of Israel to seek the Lord that you may live. Again, we see that in the midst of warnings about impending judgment, God is calling out for the salvation of Israel. Judgment's coming, but Amos said, if you'll seek the Lord, you will live. Same, same thing. Turn before you can't turn anymore. Turn while the turning is good. Now, here's a little side note. In the interlude between chapter 7 and verses 10 through 17, Amaziah, a priest at Bethel, who should have known the word of the Lord, and he should have been amening Amos, defends King Jeroboam. And he tells Amos, go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. In other words, the right foot of fellowship. Get out. It must have stung Amos to be told to go home. Hey, go home. However, they were responding to the message, not the messenger. It's the truth people have a problem with, not the truth teller. Amos replies by telling them, I didn't want the job. 
I was picked. How many of you ever felt that way? Talking to somebody about the Lord. I didn't want this job. He told me to do this. He let them know that he was quite content with shepherding when God took him from following the flock and said, go and prophesy to my people Israel. Now here's the application. In light of Amos' calling as a simple shepherd, we see that God can lay his hand on anyone, even the least likely, to do his bidding. Consider your calling, brethren, said Paul, that there's not many mighty among you, not many noble not many of pedigree, not many of who's who's in the church. For God raises up that which is not to put it not that which is. God lays his hand on the unlikely. Tonight, <coughs> on the way here, Kathy and I stopped at a hospital. And I went in to see a, a man that I've known for a long time. And he's, it looks like he's about to go home. I've known him a long time. And I knew that he didn't walk with the Lord. And I went into his room and his, his son was there. And I motioned to his son out in the hall and I said, can you leave me alone with him? He said, okay. So I went in and let's just say his name was Jim. I said, Jim, are you secure in your relationship with Christ? And he said, not really. And I said, would you let me pray with you? And this man who's rough, gruff, real Fort Worth head to toe, cowboy, boots, reached out and grabbed my hand and said, please. Then I said, I'm going to lead you in the prayer that I prayed when I was in jail. I thought he was going to come out of the bed. Jail? When were you in jail? And I said, when I was 16, and, and I came to Christ in juvenile home. He said, Jeff, I didn't know that. I said, yeah. And he said, well, look what you've done. And I said, Bob, I haven't done this. Oops. I haven't done this. And he said, well, you know, sure you did. And I said, no, please understand me. I didn't. I just met Jesus, and grace has carried me. And he said, well, it takes two. And I said, well, it's going to take two right now. I want you to pray with me to the Lord. And he sat there and he prayed. And I was able to lead him to Christ tonight on the way to church. Kind of made my night on the way here. You know, I had church. <clears throat> so, now, there's a lot of bobs in the world. Come on. Nobody you know. But I, I can tell you that um, it was a powerful moment. And he said, to me, he said, Jeff, I've always felt something very special with you and an attachment to you. Even though we've, you know, not run into each other a whole lot, I've always felt like you were a true friend. And I said, well, I appreciate that. And I feel the same way. And I'm so glad that now your heart and your soul is secure. Most important thing you can ever do. Because this man had a lot of money. And yet... You can have a saved soul and a wasted life. If you wait so long that you're in your latter years, you can have a saved soul but a wasted life. Whatever you've got left on your life, give it to the glory of God. Okay? 
So, yeah, he touched me, at least likely. If you had lined up 100 people and said, which one's going to end up preaching? I would have been last on your list. So that's what God likes to do, okay? He picks nobodies. Obadiah. Now, this is the shortest book of the Old Testament. It contains a vision concerning Edom, the Edomites. The people living in Edom were the descendants of Esau. So when you hear Edomites, think Esau. Now, interestingly, Genesis chapter 25 explains how Edom got its name. And you know the story. Esau came out of the woods. His brother was Jacob. And his daddy was Isaac. And Esau had the right of the firstborn. And Jacob wanted the right of the firstborn. So he knew that uh, Esau coming out of the woods was going to be hungry. So he, he put together this bowl of stew. And when Esau came out of the woods, famished, starving, Jacob was waiting and he kind of blew it his way. He said, hey, bro, look at this. Wouldn't you like some of this stew? He said, I sure would, uh, Jacob. Thanks so much. He said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Little, little thing we need to talk about. Let's negotiate. Let's make a business deal. I'll give you the stew if you give me the birthright. The Bible says in Hebrews, Esau despised his birthright. So he traded his birthright for a simple bowl of stew. If you can imagine that, you talk about a bad trade. Sin is always a bad trade. It's always a bad deal. So, so the Bible says that he lost his birthright. In Hebrews, we're told with tears he tried to get it back and couldn't get it back. Jacob stole it, conned it away from him. So... It's called in the New International Version, if you read it, red stew. Now, the Hebrew word that is translated into red stew is Adam, A-D-O-M, Adam, Adam. Since Esau made a huge mistake trading the stew for his birthright, his descendants were named for his mistake, Adamites, Edomites. So when you were an Edomite, Somebody could have said, here comes the red stewites, which immediately pointed to your, your patriarch having given up his soul for a bowl of red stew. So this huge mistake. You are named after a mistake. Okay? Edomites, red stewites. So his descendants were named for his mistake, and that was an insult. This begins to help us understand the hostile relationship between Edom and Judah and some of the baggage that Edom carried against them. And folks, they, they, had, they were like the Israelites and the Arabs today. The Edomites gave the children of Israel trouble from Esau down. Major trouble. When Moses was carrying the children of Israel across the wilderness, in the tail end of the wilderness wanderings, you could see in the far distance the promised land. These people have been traveling almost 40 years. To, the easiest route for them to get to the promised land was through the land of Edom. So Moses went to the Edomites and said, Listen, would you just let us cross by, just pass by on your land on our way to the promised land? In other words, would you just give us a, the right of entrance to just pass through? We're not going to bother you. We're not going to take anything of yours. Just let us pass through. And the Edomites said, no. 
Moses went back and tried to negotiate again. And every time he said, look, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to take anything from you. We don't want anything from you. We just want the right of access to pass through and go to the promised land. The Edomites again said, no, and turned them aside. The Bible says that when they turned them aside, the children of Israel came into deep, dark discouragement. And God remembered that. When the children of Israel were being chastened by God, and God was allowing them to be uh, plundered, and their goods to be taken. The Bible says the Edomites cheered their enemies on, gave away their hiding places, and turned on them. God remembered that. And that's what Obadiah is all about. Obadiah is all about God bringing judgment on Edom for being nasty to his people. You got to be real careful who you're nasty to. Choose carefully who you're nasty to. Matter of fact, don't be nasty to anybody. So there was a real history here, and this isn't switching for me, Tyler. There we go. <clears throat> Obadiah's message begins by warning Edom of her coming judgment. Verses 3 to 4 condemn the Edomites for their arrogance. Edom believes they are secure based on the ease with which she could defend her cities that were built high up in the mountains. Mount Esau is one of the highest mountains southeast of the Dead Sea, and they said, no matter who comes against us, they won't be able to defeat us because of where we're located. But folks, when God starts to judge you, nobody can hide you. Okay? However, God warns that from there, I will bring you down. Obadiah tells them that even thieves and robbers leave something behind when they steal. However, Esau will be totally ransacked because of her pride. And you know what you can't find today? One Edomite anywhere. They're gone. Wiped out. God judged them for how they treated his people. I wonder if somebody could grab this, Tyler, and see if we can fix it while we're... Here we go, Frank. Thank you. Or George. Thanks. <clears throat> so Obadiah continues by condemning the Edomites for their unbrotherliness because they were kin to the children of Israel. I mean, Esau was Jacob's brother, okay? So what had they done to ignite God's judgment? They stood aloof, says Obadiah, while other countries carried off Judah's wealth. Edom is also accused of rejoicing over Judah's misfortune. It appears that one of Edom's biggest wrongs was not what they did, but what they failed to do. They didn't raise a finger to help out a brother in distress. Oh, folks, catch this. Because Ob you read Obadiah, it's, it's the shortest one in there. Obadiah is all about, you, you didn't help your brother when he was being attacked. You didn't help your brother when he called for you. You, you just turned on them. And because you had a little root of bitterness, you're carrying a chip on your shoulder towards them. You treated them wrongly and turn them over to their enemies. And so, therefore, I'm going to have to bring judgment on you. And a, a really, a strong judgment came on them. Thank you, Frank. Let me give it the test. Yay. All right. 
So look what Obadiah tells them, quote, as you have done, it will be done to you. Can we read that together? As you have done, it'll be done to you. Is that true in life? As you have done, it'll be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Ooh. You know, everything we do is like a boomerang. It comes back your way. Good or bad. That's why I want, I want blessings chasing me down. Not chastenings. Blessings. Long before Christ taught to return good for evil, <clears throat> Obadiah demonstrates the need to forgive the sins of the past, choosing to respond with love. If Esau, the Edomites, had only forgiven they would have treated Israel right and they wouldn't have been wiped off the earth because there's not any left. Here's the application. When someone is being chastened by God for their sin, it is wise to treat them with compassion. You don't want it said that you kick somebody when they were down. Anybody in here ever been kicked while you're down? Let me see your hands. You've been kicked when you're down. Isn't that just a wonderful feeling? You know, you need help, you need compassion, and somebody just kicks you when you're down. Here's what you can know. Vengeance is the Lord's. And it may take a while, but if somebody kicks you when you're down, really kicks you when you're down, they just threw a boomerang. It comes back. Jonah. Jonah was a prophet from Israel who was called to prophesy to Nineveh. But instead of heading towards Nineveh, a northeasterly direction... Jonah went the opposite direction in response to God's call. He ran from the call of God. Why did he do that? All right, first, Jonah belonged to a people who wanted to retain their God's favorite nation status. Again, they thought that they were above others because of being God's chosen people. So he would have had a difficult time going to proclaim any message in order to save another nation. Second, during the reign of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, Israel was warned that the sin of worshiping idols would be punished. And Jonah knew about that. They were told that God would, quote, listen to this, uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river because they provoked the Lord to anger. That was the warning to Israel. And that's exactly what happened when the Assyrians invaded. They were scattered and unlike Judah, they never returned. Beyond the river pointed to Assyria. He said, he said, it's something from beyond the river that's going to come upon you. Beyond the river pointed to Assyria. Nineveh was a large Assyrian city requiring three days to walk through, according to Jonah 3, verse 3. Nineveh would one day become the capital of Assyria. So it makes sense that Jonah, an Israelite, might be hesitant to warn the enemy, Assyria, that they would be destroyed. He couldn't handle the thought of saving his homeland's worst enemy. It'd be like during World War II if God told you to go preach to the Japanese, that they would turn and receive all kinds of mercy and blessing. There are certain people that wouldn't have done that. Looking for repetition in a Bible book helps us understand the message. Now, what you see in Jonah a quick skim of Jonah reveals four examples of people crying out in their distress and as a result experiencing God's compassion. This is one of the repeated themes in Jonah. 
First, the sailors on Jonah's ship cried, Don't let us die. And the sea grew calm and the sailors feared the Lord, but it only grew calm when they threw the trouble overboard. And that was Jonah. And the Bible said that a great fish swallowed him. This, this last week, Kathy showed me a picture she found in a news story on the internet of this man swimming in, in the water, a, a, a scuba diver, and this huge fish with its mouth open coming towards this man. And it showed actual dimensions of this fish. This man, compared to this fish's mouth, looked like a dwarf. This fish could have inhaled and taken this whole man in. And that's exactly what happened to Jonah. As soon as he hit the water, a giant fish swallowed him whole. And down he went into the smelliest, dirtiest, darkest hell imaginable. And you know how stubborn this guy was? It took him three days to repent. I would have, I would have repented on the way down the throat. <laughs> oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. But he's down there with those guts and other fish that have been swallowed and seaweed. He talks about the seaweed covering him. You talk about stubborn. Stubborn. After three days, he said, okay, I'll do it. The fish just spit him out. He said, do you really believe that, Jeff? Jesus did. The sea grew calm. The sailors feared the Lord. Now, second, Jonah cried out from the belly of the fish. I'll sacrifice to you. You got me. The fish vomited Jonah on the dry land, and he was spared. And I believe the reason the people repented was they took one look at this bleached white guy and said, whatever did that to him, I don't want to experience it. Third, the Ninevites cried out for mercy. Every man and beast, and God had compassion, and spared the whole city. Though a little over a century later, they were finally judged. Finally, Jonah cried out angrily at God for having had mercy on Nineveh. He was mad that God spared Nineveh. He was angry that his preaching worked. Imagine that. He had the greatest revival in the history of the world. Seriously, the whole city repented. And he was mad that God honored his preaching. And God sent a word of comfort and reason to him. While these are four examples of God's compassion, Jonah seems to believe that he alone deserved God's compassion, no one else. While God's compassion was a wonderful thing when it related to his own personal need, he couldn't stand it when others received God's compassion. Jonah responds to God's compassion to Nineveh in chapter 4, verse 2. Listen to this. I'm going to say it. Crybaby. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home, when I ran? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew my preaching would work. This reveals the answer as to why Jonah fled for Tarshish. He couldn't stand the thought of God being compassionate on the people who were Israel's worst enemy. Nineveh is described, and this touches me. God said, is Nineveh not 120,000 people, Jonah, who cannot tell their right hand from their left? 
They are totally in the dark, son. They have no discernment. They didn't know they were perishing. And your preaching turned them. And you're telling me I shouldn't have mercy on them? Here's the application. <clears throat> we could better bear many of our trials if we could see through God's eyes and not our own. Now the last one tonight, Micah. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. <clears throat> like Amos, who was his contemporary, Micah came from a rural setting in Judah known as Morasheth, located about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. <clears throat> his writing describes him as a countryman, like a peasant farmer. He addresses his message to the citizens of Judah, Micah, or especially Jerusalem, particularly Jerusalem, and also for a while to Israel in the north. And Micah, you know, it was Micah who said, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the clans of Judah, yet out of you will he, capital H, come forth, whose goings have been of old, even from everlasting. Micah prophesied that an eternal personality would invade earth via Bethlehem. It was a prophecy of Christ, Micah 5, verse 2. So he addresses his message uh, to Judah, especially Jerusalem, and then Israel in the north a little bit. He prophesies just before and after the fall of northern Israel. Think about that. <clears throat> He's prophesying before Israel is taken captive, and then after they're taken captive, he turns to Judah and says, See what just happened to your sister? You want that happening to you? Boy, did he have a great object lesson. Micah 1.1 states that his vision concerning Samaria and Jerusalem came during the reigns of Judah's kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, Micah saw through the outward appearance of religion, and he attacked the corruption that was in the land. He addresses the exploitation of the poor, the injustice of the courts, and the failure of rulers and religious leaders to fulfill their responsibilities. He saw right through the sham of religion. Now, Micah recognized that going through the motions of worship only added to the problem. If, if you're doing this, glory to God, hallelujah, kumbaya, but you've got nothing in your heart, uh, Micah said that's dangerous. Dangerous, because you're desensitizing yourself to the real thing. It gave the people a false sense of being right with God. They weren't right with God. They, promote, they were living a life of hypocrisy. So Micah's message was a wake-up call to the whole nation, telling them that a righteous God cannot tolerate such unrighteousness. If you're going to praise the Lord, really mean it. If you're going to go to church, really mean it. You know, if you're going to go through a religious ritual, really let it be something that's in your heart. Because ritual means nothing to God. Chillingly, he warns that their punishment is coming sooner rather than later. Speaking during the fall of Israel, no doubt added a sense of urgency to his message. As Judah watched in horror while their sister received God's punishment for their unfaithfulness. It took over a century for Judah to experience their judgment, but it came. To many in Judah, Micah's message seemed ridiculous. How could God permit his people to be punished by a heathen nation that's more wicked than them? Judah continued to base their hope on the temple, insisting the Lord would never allow his temple to be destroyed. They said, this is God's temple. 
As long as this temple is here, he's not going to let us get touched because he won't let the temple get touched. But the temple was completely decimated. And they were carried off into captivity. So much for thinking a religious artifact can make you safe. Micah warns them that the only assurance of God's presence is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And this, is a, this verse is just another reminder of the great commandment to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> the justice and mercy Micah preaches uh, speaks of our relationship to others, horizontal. How are you treating people? While to walk humbly with your God speaks of your relationship with the Lord. The two reasons given for the coming judgment of the people come from these two dimensions of relationships. This way, this way. They pervert the worship practices and they show injustice towards others. Here's the application and we're done. Let's just stand to read this last one. <coughs> Amen. When a person or a nation depart from their relationship with God, they begin treating others badly. So as long as you keep this good, you're going to treat people better. Amen? That's it. Next week we're finished the last of the minors and we're done. So how many of you enjoy this tonight? Isn't this good? <clears throat> Amen. I am so blessed to have a church that wants to learn the Word of God this way. I hope we have a school someday.